Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ordinary League with me, John McGovern, and my colleague, Mike Daly, uh, where we discuss uh, ongoing current events in, world, in the world and here in Scotland. Mike, not a great time to be watching the news, is it? It's, it's, it's the most awful possible time, I think, John. Um, I mean, what's happening over uh, in uh, Gaza is is just incredible. Um, and it's and it's fascinating, you know, because there seems to be this kind of constant media drive that, in terms of mainstream media, that Israel's entitled to defend itself. And of course, of course, that's correct. Um, but when when people are asked, for example, I don't know if you saw the original interview with Keir Starmer when he was asked, and indeed, I think some of the, of the other kind of uh, shadow cabinet were asked this and gave the same response. Uh, is it is it correct um, for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to be deprived of water, to be deprived of food, and of course fuel is needed in order for those trucks to to move around uh, across uh, Gaza to distribute food and water? Is it correct for Israel to be able to do that? And the response that came from Keir Starmer was, Israel uh, has a right to defend itself. Now, that wasn't the answer to the question. And what has been, I think, quite quite fascinating from a kind of a, a UK political perspective is that Keir Starmer had to clarify what he meant. This seems to be something, we've talked about this before, John, you know, Scotland's First Minister's done this quite a few times in terms of sort of effectively reinterpreting and, and giving a different answer, but saying actually it's a clarification. And so what Keir Starmer is now accepting is that, uh, you know, it cannot be correct uh, for Israel uh, to block water and food coming into Gaza. Um, that in itself uh, is, of course, a violation of international law. Uh, we have international humanitarian law. We have the Geneva Conventions. Uh, it's a war crime, John, to to punish and starve uh, a population, half of which, as we know, are children. So you're talking about a million children in Gaza. So the idea that you're going to starve uh, people, and actually water will get people first. People can only live for a few days without water. Um, it's it's just absolutely horrific. Um, but, I mean, as I say, at least we're now, I think, starting to get people, uh, our, our political leaders, uh, accepting that this cannot be conscionable. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, John. Yeah, uh, yeah, I just think, oh, good to hear my career to begin, and there's so much to to uh, to watch, to comment on, to consider. Uh, it really is desperately, desperately sad. And uh, but this this podcast is called the Ordinary Elite, and I think what you know the last two weeks in Gaza and Israel uh, have shown us how out of touch uh, our elite politicians are with what, you know, the people think. Yeah. Uh, there was a poll poll done by YouGov just towards the tail end of last week. It polled around, I think it was around 4,000 people. So, it's, you know, the polls go, it's reasonably representative. And 76% of those polled wanted a ceasefire. Yeah. And yet you watch that you watch that debate, Mike, in the House of Commons or the, the, the uh yesterday and uh last week 
and you are a lone voice, really, if you, as an MP, call for a ceasefire. There's, you can count the one hand the amount of Labour uh, MPs that were doing it. In fairness to the SNP, yeah. uh, Stephen, Stephen Flynn was good. Uh, Hamza Yusuf has called for a, a ceasefire. And uh, there, are, there are rights and wrongs to all of this. Uh, there's no doubt what Hamas did was a war crime. There's no doubt, in my view as a lawyer, that what, how Israel has responded is a war crime. Uh, but how any human being cannot want a ceasefire here and cannot call for a ceasefire is beyond me. It, it reminds me, Mike, uh, just by coincidence, I, I was reading a book uh, earlier, uh, or just last month, I just finished it by Robert Fisk, you know, who was the, the kind of war historian, uh, and he's brilliant on the Middle East. And, and there was a quote of his uh, where he described war as the total failure of the human spirit yeah. and uh, that sums it up for me you know I, I can't uh, I can't begin to understand it and Starmer is all over the place on it uh, yeah. his party is not going to is not going to sit with this for much for, I don't think for much longer as the, the the bodies of the children in particular you know pile up by the thousands Israel hasn't even so far as we know gone into Gaza yet uh, in terms of troops on the ground, so it can only get worse. Uh, but it's just some, it sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, in, in the last uh, since October seventh, uh, the, the leaders, presidents, or prime ministers of Greece, Holland, the UK, the United States, Italy, Germany have all visited Netanyahu. All of yeah, them. yeah. And Mac Macron, Macron is going today. And, uh, you know, so what Starmer is doing is following the, the kind of global elite. That's all he's doing. That's, that's his constituency on foreign affairs. What these people want, not what the people who elect him want. And uh, that's the ordinary elite for you, Mike. That's exactly what they are. That, that, I mean, it absolutely is, John. And coming back to your observation about folk being out of touch, our so-called political leaders being out of touch, Certainly in terms of the Middle East, out of touch. Certainly in terms of what's going on in uh, Gaza, um, uh, out, out of touch. And of course, here at home, we've had a report that's just published this morning um, by the, Rose, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. And it's incredible, I think, because the JRF have been tracking uh, destitution, people that experience destitution uh, in uh, the UK. And what we mean by that, John, is if somebody uh, for a period of time um, has a lack of food, a, a lack of uh, shelter, uh, you know, nowhere to live, um, the inability to to clean themselves, to clothe themselves, the inability to 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 do all of these basic things in life, then that falls within what anybody would understand as being destitute, being absolutely rooked. And what we now know from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation today is that uh, in the last year, 3.8 million people experienced destitution across the United Kingdom. And that included uh, uh, a staggering figure of a million children uh, and that that as a sort of a number was 180% higher than five years ago. And I just simply put it to you, John, that, you know, this, 
ever-increasing rise in destitution. We know we've got a cost-of-living crisis. But the fact that it's getting worse year on year, um, and there is no you know, national uh, outcry that this is a crisis, to me, that is perhaps uh, incredibly compelling evidence how our uh, politicians, whether in Westminster or indeed in Holyrood, uh, are are out of touch. You know, these things don't affect people who are paid by the taxpayer and enjoy expenses and uh, uh, the various perks, you know, that, that are beyond the dreams of, of ordinary people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... it's uh... It's, it, I've read uh, commentaries on on the Roundtree Foundation report, Mike, and it's it's something again we we've touched on. It's almost Dickensian, isn't it? I mean, the, the food banks are 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 now restricting how much uh, you know users can take away. Yeah. Uh, you know, which, which is just resonant of the you know the famous Oliver Twist line, isn't it? Please, sir, can I have some more? And. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, our Prime Minister is over uh, in Israel saying literally, literally to Netanyahu, we want you to win. Literally saying that to him. Yeah. If that's not warmongering, I don't know what is. And, uh, and, and this is going on at home where four million people are destitute. And, uh, you know, in, in one sense, uh, as someone brought up in Glasgow and, and who still lives here, and who has never voted uh, conservative? It, it's something that you kind of expect, isn't it? From, from yeah. or if, if, it, if if these types of figures were to uh, were to be uh, put in the public domain, which they have been, it's the type of thing you would you would almost kind of think, well, that that that's the Tories for you. But of course, Scotland, you know, uh, is is in a, a real kind of uh, desperate situation in, in relation to these types of issues as well, Mike, as we know. And Hamza Yusuf last week announcing a freeze on council tax again, yeah, again, uh, after uh, my goodness, what was it, uh, fifteen years of it, uh, from two thousand and seven to two thousand and twenty-two. Effectively, as, as far as I can see, there are local authorities in in Scotland that are as good as bankrupt. I mean, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're selling off prized assets, the family silver, to survive, and then. Without any consultation, it seems whatsoever, uh, with any any local authority or any of the 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 convention of Scottish local authorities, COSLA, and maybe in breach of actually agreements that had already been made, uh, he announces another freeze. Can he not see the damage that the freeze of fifteen years, which the SNP implemented on councils or enforced on councils? For electoral gain, I mean, it was clearly for electoral gain, elect to try to get elected in central government. Can he not see the damage it is doing to our local services? Well, John, this this was the big surprise that happened a week ago today. Actually, um, this was the closing speech uh, last Tuesday uh, of uh, First Minister Hamza Yusuf in Aberdeen, and what's staggering about it, and I completely agree with your analysis, um, is that. I mean, here's two two sort of points for you, right? So back in June this year, uh, the Scottish Government uh, announces what it calls the Verity House Agreement. You know, great fanfare. 
we now have an agreement with the 32 councils in Scotland, local government, whereby we're going to do a collaborative approach for our joint vision to tackle poverty, to tackle you know discrimination, to tackle the things that are wrong that we need to put right in Scotland. And uh, everyone went, wow, that, that's good. There's going to be less ring fencing because you've talked about the Scottish government having imposed council tax freezes. I mean, legally, councils are entitled to set whatever council tax levels they want. But the way it's worked historically is that the Scottish government will say, well, if you want uh, uh, the lion's share of funding, which comes via them, which ultimately comes via Westminster in terms of the consolidated fund block grant, then you need to basically abide by our rules. Otherwise, you don't get them. And what we've had in the past is lots of ring fencing. So, you know, we'll give you this money, but you have to use it for what we tell you to do. So there, there has been kind of an undermining of local government um, going on for many, many years. And ultimately, the Verity House Agreement signed in June looked like a real, you know, positive change in terms of saying we're now going to kind of have no surprises. We're going to kind of consult with you. It'll be done jointly. Well, hang on a second. Um, the first at COSLA, the body that represents councils in Scotland, knows about the council tax freeze is when it, it hums the use of announces it last Tuesday and they're watching it on the TV. Um, and the other thing is, hang on a second, we go we go forward a month from June. So in July, the Scottish government do a public consultation. You may remember this. So they were mooting council tax rises of between 7.5% and 22.5%. And that was for uh, bands uh, E to H, respectively, uh, in terms of the property valuations. Now, people's Eyes were popping, you know, uh, uh, when when they saw this because um, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a crude tool to rely on council tax bans as a way to measure somebody's wealth. And why is that, John? Well, it's because they're essentially based on 1991 property valuations. So it's very crude, you know, to assume that somebody living in a house, which actually might be classed as say band D. Um, in 91, but actually isn't Bandy anymore, right? Because things have changed. There's been gentrification. You know, the house is actually worth a fortune, right? There's all sorts of things mm -hmm. like that one could look at across mm -hmm. the whole of Scotland. Yes. So so it is very crude, you know, to to, to use that as a measure. And, every, and everybody's acknowledged that. So, but I think the biggest take for me out of this announcement uh, from the First Minister was it was presented as a cost of living uh, initiative. Now, John, let me tell you, right? If you're poor and you don't have any money, I've got news for you. Well, actually, I don't because you know this. You don't pay council tax. You get the full rebate. You may still yeah. have to pay a small amount in terms of water and sewage, which has always been a nightmare scenario for for people that are that are on very very low incomes and, and on the breadline. Um, but you will get a hundred percent council tax uh, rebate. So. And and people that are on you know lower or modest incomes may be entitled certainly to a percentage of council tax reductions. So if you think about it, freezing the council tax in Scotland does really two things in a nutshell. Uh, and I like your thoughts on this. For, and this is my take. One is it actually benefits people on the very highest incomes in our society. They're the ones that stand to to benefit most. They're more likely to be in the very large villas uh, and what have you. 
And the second thing it does is it stymies, yet again, the ability of local government to deliver services. And as you've alluded to, John, uh, we've already seen various councils across Scotland talk about you know, voluntary redundancies, having to cut back essential services, looking, I mean, we talked about this, I think, the other week. North Lancashire Council was looking at closing every sports centre, swimming pool and community hall uh, and had to do uh, a vote uh, face on that. So um, local government in Scotland is in a right old mess. And the idea that you're going yeah. to, you know, you're, you're, go you're going to help it and you're going to help ordinary people by freezing council tax, I think is a complete nonsense. I just think it's bad governance, Mike. I just think that it, it, it's... Uh, I mean, when the freeze was introduced in, in, in 2007, it was, it was uh, part of the SNP's election campaign, you know, to appeal to the swing voter, probably mostly uh, at that time in the middle class kind of sector, upper working class, you know, will freeze your council tax. And, yeah. you know... It was a bribe. People went for it, got it, uh, and then I, I actually looked, Mike. I, I thought this might come up today, and I and I looked at the SNP manifesto in twenty sixteen. So twenty sixteen is a uh, there was a Scottish parliamentary election in May, a uh, Holyrood election, and uh, the SNP put out a, a sorry, it's not the manifesto, a press release in January just before that election saying we have kept our promise to freeze the council tax in every budget of this parliament. So that's 2016. It's been frozen for the last nine years. By the end of this parliamentary term, council tax will have been frozen for nine consecutive years. By contrast, between 2007 and 2008 and 2015-2016, council tax has increased by 12% in England. There's the old English comparison again. So they're boasting in 2016 about yeah. it being frozen for nine years and they're basically using it as a mandate to try to get another term in government in 2016, which they did do. And this is when the SNP were riding high. This is when they were they were unassailable in Scotland. Yeah. And many of the local authorities, Mike, as you know, uh, post-2017, until that, well, maybe even beyond then, a lot of them uh, became hung kind of local authorities under SNP control. And the local authorities played a part in this. They wouldn't mm. criticise central government for impose, imposing yeah. the council tax uh, freeze because, remember, it was wished, it was wished for Indy, remember? You weren't allowed to criticise the SNP at all because it would compromise you know, their ability to, to uh, campaign for, for independence. I just think this is terrible governance. I think this is them putting power uh, before the people. This is them putting their own electoral interests before the economic well-being of those that live in the local authority areas. If you, in Glasgow, Mike, you know, uh, in, in 2007, the council tax that was paid on average, on average in Glasgow, was £946. And the Scottish government figures are kind of, uh, they're, they're slightly opaque because that includes a water service charge, which That's was right. not yeah. subject which was not subject to freeze, Mike. So the water, so any increase that followed from nine from 2007 was an increase in water charges, not council tax. And the breakdown of those figures is not available from the Scottish government. So that so the kind of uh, universal figure of 946 in 2007 uh, uh, was increased only uh, in 2020, 2022 to 1,138 pounds in Glasgow. I mean, it yeah. went up 
how much is that? Less than £200 in 16 years wow. for council tax. And had it gone with inflation, uh, when the freeze was lifted in 2022, the council tax would have been over £1,500. And it's still this year is down at 1200 and something pounds, still about £300 short of what inflation increase could have been. And if you had good governance, you would have increased it surely with inflation or allowed the local authorities to increase it with inflation or in line with inflation. But this was nothing more. It was nothing more than an electoral bribe. And going back to the Roundtree Foundation report, Mike, that you opened with, that has meant yeah. that uh, I've got absolutely no doubt there's a correlation between homelessness yeah. because of the uh, the lack of infrastructure and the, the cost of that that local authorities can provide, drug deaths, uh, facilities for drug users, all of these issues impact. I mean, uh, far more, in my view, uh, at the sharp end of 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 uh, this type of argument, and uh, it was it was done for the freeze was introduced for all the wrong reasons. And why Hamza Youssef has announced that, Mike, without any consultation, is just it, it's just I, I can't. It's just stupid. It's just stupid politics. John, I I, I would go beyond what you've uh, concluded, and and I mean you, your point is you think this was done, you know, for party political electioneering reasons. You know, it's going to be a general election most likely at some point next year. I would go beyond that. And I would argue, I think I think this announcement in terms of the council tax freeze, actually, it has all the hallmarks of just simply being something to deliver a speech for the First yeah. Minister at his party conference. Yeah. Why do I think that? Well, Shona Robinson um, confirmed, almost kind of threw Hums under the bus a wee bit, under the old camper van, that the um, that this only came out. Uh, the policy <laughs> came <it> out, <laughs> indeed. Um, still pining for the Highland fjords, but anyway, the the, the the you know the the decision itself was made about twenty four hours to forty eight hours before Hamza Yusuf gave his speech. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, that's effectively the back of a beer mat, you know, fag packet, whatever you like. And you know what? There was no costings of this policy. So there's been a lot of money floated yeah. around in terms of Hamza Yusuf's speech, but um, but there's no costings for this. And I, I, initially, when the announcement was made, there was some sort of things going around saying, "Oh well, it's going to be funded, fully funded by the Scottish government, you know, and that might be about 100 million." It's like, whoa, it's not going to be 100 million. That's way off the mark. So the Strathclyde University's Fraser Valander Institute looked at the did a bit of number crunching, and said. Um, actually, you could properly assume there would have been an 8% increase. I mean, that was what was being planned by many local authorities, some a bit more, some maybe a bit less. Um, and it still wouldn't give you the full figure because there was also plans to increase multipliers in terms of some of the bans. So what they've calculated is it's going to cost, in terms of the freeze, to, to make up that $229 million uh, over the next 2024, 20, 25, plus in terms of increasing multipliers, 188. So the Fraser Valander Institute reckon it's about 417 million, right, to to fully fund the uh, uh, the freeze. Now that's astonishing because that's almost a half a billion yeah. pounds. Now that yeah. would have to come out of the Scottish Con Consolidated Fund, um, which is. Uh, uh, also uh, uh, supplemented by income tax, because obviously, remember, mm. income taxes had been devolved 
to the Scottish Parliament. And we already pay more income tax than anywhere else in the UK, um, you know, significantly more. And um, and what I say to that is, well, income tax is arguably more progressive than council tax because it is based on what somebody's wages or income is, right? So in terms of having those higher rates, 20% then going up uh, to, say, 42% in Scotland, um, and then there's one way about beyond that, it's based on actual income. So what you're doing is you're taking the almost a half a billion pounds of a fairer taxation system, because that's yes. where the money's going to come from, right? And you're using that yes. to prop up a discredited uh, system, which isn't progressive, which is very regressive. Yeah. And, and that means that it isn't a cost of living measure, because people that are really at the sharp end wouldn't be paying council tax in the first place, right? And what you could have done, if you wanted to be um, progressive about it, you might have said, well, look, we can reasonably estimate that people in some of the lower band value houses are more likely to have lower incomes. So we'll make sure they get a freeze, right? You could have you could have done that. And you could have said, however, in terms of uh, the other bands, will you know permit uh, a, you know a reasonable fair modest increase and that could have been graduated in terms of the higher the band in order to sort of say well you know perhaps that's going to be but again it wouldn't be perfect i mean really really what you need to do is completely uh, replace council tax with the fair system but anyway you could have did something john right you could have did something better than what what we know. Well, on which point, Mike? I mean, that's a great analysis, incidentally. It's a, it's a really subtle point, isn't it, that you're using, you know, on, on paper, theoretically, a fair tax system to fund an unfair tax system because of, uh, because of, you know, historic and consistent failures in policy. But on, on, the, on the, the point about it being an unfair system, I mean, how can it possibly be fair based on property assessments yeah. that were done, you know, I mean... I've been married 28 years. I've got three children. These property assessments were done four years before I got married. I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. ludicrous. And, uh, you know, in their, 20, their aforementioned 2016 uh, manifesto, SNP say, we believe the council tax system in Scotland is unfair and needs to be reformed. You know, and then it goes on to mm. say, basically set up another commission. That's seven and a half years ago, Mike. Hey, John, John <laughs> I just, mean... It is in terms. I mean, you've you've made the point about you know it's poor governance. I think I think that's right, just in terms of the fact that you know you've already brokered this Verity House agreement with um, local government, and you've just completely swept that aside. I think it's shocking, shocking uh, governance. There, there is no governance in it, and as I say, I'm convinced it was for the purposes of a speech. Now, you know, uh, a speech is like you know wrapped in the, the fish and chip paper, you know, the next day, let's be honest. You know, uh, I, I think it's incredible to incur best part of a half a billion pound potentially uh, on the back of of that kind of caprice. It, it, I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just awful, right? I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, the only other things in the, the speech that the First Minister gave, I mean, there was a good thing, I think, in terms of this new project, I think through... Uh, five local authority areas working with women's aid um, and, and that is I think half a million pounds to be able to give women that are fleeing domestic abuse and violence you know up to say a thousand pounds to relocate uh, I think that's a good 
I will be very interested to see the research uh, <clears throat> outcomes of that, John. But I, I, I mean, I liked, I liked that as a bit of innovative, progressive thinking. <clears throat> Other than that, we had the proposal to launch Scottish bonds um, from the Scottish government. Mm. Now, I, I, all mm. I'll say about that is, um, I do think that could. Why be, not before, Mike? Well, why not? It could have been done. It could why, have been why done before now. Could have been done some well before, John. And it's interesting to note that my understanding is that any issuing of Scottish bonds is all subject to the Treasury uh, rules in terms of how much the Scottish government and Scottish Parliament can uh, raise through effectively borrowing. So there's limits on these mm -hmm. things, right? In terms of default devolved administrations. So any Scottish bonds has got to be within the overall envelope. You know of what could be what could be borrowed. Um, thinking about bonds, I remember the Wheatley Group. That, so one of you know, like the, you know, Glasgow House Association, various other house associations that are part of that group. They've launched a bond on the international market, and they've used that to 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 basically borrow money to build social housing. Right? Fair enough. You know, so this is not a, an unusual thing. But what I the reason I suggest that. That this announcement is not really the fanfare type thing that people might think is for what the reason you've said, John, which is it could have been done before. Why wasn't it done before? Well, it probably wasn't done before because it's not going to give you anything extra that you couldn't do anyway, right? Through other types of borrowing. Um, and actually, because these bonds wouldn't be guaranteed by Her Majesty's Treasury, so they're not backed by like the Bank of England, and they're not like gilts or you know um, UK government uh, bonds. Um, bonds. Then what, yeah. what 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 it effectively means is they're backed by the pot of money that the Scottish government has ultimately at its disposal, right? Which which any international finance mm -hmm. finance um, expert might look at and think, oh, hang on a wee minute. Um, that may be slightly riskier because it's not as safe yeah. as a sovereign UK, you know, or whether it's France, Germany, you know, backed by the uh, uh, the European uh, Central Bank. So I just I think it's not controversial to suggest, John, that the pricing of these bonds in terms of what it's going to cost the Scottish government is going to be higher than, say, what, for example, you know, the, the Fed in America or the the, the Bank of England issues in terms of UK government. It's going to be higher. I don't know how much higher, but I guarantee you it's bound to be higher because it definitely will be seen to be something that will have more of a risk. Now, that then makes you sort of go, hang on a second, doesn't that undermine the Scottish government's whole kind of fiscal proposition? You know, because because really what you're doing is you're then showing that there is more risk in doing doing certain things. In 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 ways that are innovative, but I mean, other than that, I think the only thing about the conference that really struck me um, was the attendance by former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, John, um, and, and I was somewhat astonished because it kind of it kind of you know um, usurped um, Hamza Yusuf in terms of a massive media scrum. And I found it very odd because it's not like she really had anything to say. You're not the first minister anymore. You know, you're a you're a backbench MSP, and and she attended to this huge media scrum, which was um, certainly more press attention than Hamza got. So you you might have sort of thought to yourself, 
you know, now that she's no longer a backseat driver, passed her test. Sorry, but maybe you are a backseat driver because because you're turning up at conference, not upstaging your successor. And and then the thing that really, you know, I was watching this and I thought, this is very odd, was this kind of um, tribute act. You know, there was like a film that was played in front of the whole conference. When I say the whole conference, it was a small number that attended. Mm. It was only about, I think, mm. 600, 700 people all in. Um, but I thought that was very odd, you know, having this kind of making the whole yeah. conference about... Because if you think about it, what parties should, you need to do is to look ahead. Surely, John, they need to look ahead and yeah. to, and, to and, and not to constantly be looking uh, in the rear mirror. Well, gosh, you know, I mean, uh, it's incredible. She, in 2014, Mike, after the independence referendum, she was the headline act at an SNP, I think it was SNP, it might have been a yes campaign, I'm not sure, kind of rally at the Hydro in Glasgow. Sold out, 14,000 people there with their flags and everything. Yeah. And she was the headline act. She went on at the end, like, you know, pretty much like a kind of, you know, uh, a rock star, I suppose, going on the stage and saying her piece. And nine years later, basically, yeah. uh, there probably, I mean, uh, there could have been more press around her when she arrived in that escalator than there actually were delegates at the SNP uh, conference. And there's a kind of certain irony in that because the demise of the SNP is, in, in those intervening years is largely down to her failure as, as First Minister. I mean, if you think about it, Mike, there's, there's been a war going on in Ukraine. Uh, well, let's just say it started or escalated uh, when Sturgeon was still in office. And when I when I, I complimented uh, Stephen Flynn earlier on in, in, in this podcast on calling for a ceasefire, and, and Hamza Yusuf has done the same, yep. we've got to be very careful uh, when we rely on SNP for foreign policy guidance, because you will recall during the Ukraine war that Sturgeon uh, called for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Yeah. Remember yeah, that? I do. And, uh, I mean, we're... we're <laughs> Where, where would that have led? You know, I mean, I don't even think the neocons in America were, were, were going that far, and that's what Sturgeon called for. But it's interesting now we've got the, the war in Gaza and uh, Sturgeon's uh, contribution that I've seen in the press uh, during that time has been uh, she passed her driving test. Yeah, she passed well, her driving test, Mike. Yeah. It was in the papers yesterday. It was, she was like, she's getting more like Jimmy Cranky by the day. She was hanging out the window with the thumbs up with the driving instructor in front of her, you know. And, uh, you know, this was somebody that, but uh, less than a year ago, was calling for no fly zones over Ukraine. It's, uh, well, so uh, the, the word for me is pathetic. Well, I, I mean, a, a no fly zone over Ukraine, uh, which obviously would have had to have been enforced by NATO, John, would, would have created. I mean, it, oh it's, it, it's beyond thinking in terms of the how that would have destabilized the whole, the whole of uh, the Russian Federation and the whole of that part of Europe. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 I mean, it's just it's beyond belief. Fan, 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 Dabby Dozy, it would not have been Mike. It wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been John. And you know, I, you know, I suppose one can only be grateful that we don't have somebody with that complete absence of understanding of foreign affairs uh making making any announcements anymore you know thank goodness see, for that see going back to the, the the issue of the bond 
uh, I know we're kind of maybe running out of time, but uh, what, what, he said that this would be for infrastructure projects. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether, I know that in terms of uh, uh, taxation uh, can only be for capital projects, I think, as well. And I'm just wondering, uh, what's your view on, if, if you're looking to issue bonds to effectively get international investment uh, into infrastructure projects in this country, given the present Scottish government's track record on uh, infrastructure uh, development in Scotland or lack thereof, mm. what do you think uh, or how do you think uh, people or, or, or investors will react? Do you think they'll be interested in investing in this government, which is essentially what you're, you're really asking them to do? And secondly, if they don't, I mean, who, 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 do, who do the SNP blame if, no one, if they issue these bonds and no one bites? Well, John, I mean, ultimately, what you're doing is you're trying to offer a proposition to the international money markets. Um, and to make that attractive, you either, well, it's, I, I don't think it's rocket science um, from people that I've spoken to uh, that, that know about these things. Um, you either make it attractive in terms of the rate of return, or you make it attractive because it's a solid, you know, as bricks and mortar in terms of being backed by you know the European Central Bank, the American Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, for example, right? So, I I think the I think the thing about the bond announcement is that it, it it's I'm not quite sure it's ever going to materialise because if you want to do a capital project in Scotland, there's nothing to stop the Scottish government from borrowing money as per the rules agreed with the Treasury, right? So the only reason that you would want to do it via issuing bonds is if you could get a cheaper rate uh, so that the whole thing would be more financially um, attractive. Um, and th there's no evidence yet uh, that that would be the case. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But in terms of, I think that's a separate thing in terms of the actual building of infrastructure projects, because... I mean, ultimately, if somebody was to kind of lend money, then they lend money, uh, and the, the fact that the project goes pear shaped or goes massively over over budget is not an issue for the person that's lending money necessarily, because they've just simply said, "Look, you know, we will we will give you this, and this is what we expect back. And we have our own financial instrument to cover that." So, I think I think one of the things actually we need to do in Scotland is to assemble, it's like, you know, Avengers assemble. We need we need to get a team of people um, who are skilled in project management because I think that's been the failure, right? And so if you look at, for example, examples of, you know, purchasing, whether it was Presswick Airport, um, which has not been a success financially, if you look at the steel, you know, mill deal that was done, if you look at the, you know, the Ferguson uh, deal in terms of the ferries, so many of these projects, I mean, if you look at the trams, for example, going back even further in Edinburgh, so many of these projects have just simply been run in such a way that they don't just go double over budget, they kind of, you know, go sometimes yeah. tenfold over budget. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So why is that? And I, and I would say to you, the reason that is, is not rocket science again. 
it's because, you know, and what you need to do is a root cause analysis to work out how it all happened. And by the way, you don't have to spend £5 million on an inquiry that doesn't do a root cause mm. analysis. Mm. It just does this kind of, oh, it was nobody's fault in particular, mm. but it was terrible. Mm. You know, so what, 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 what I'm talking about is you say, why is this happening? And I'll tell you why it's happening. You need people with industry experience subject to whatever particular project it is, right? And so what you do is you bring in people who've got the expertise, who've got the track records. That's what you do, John. You don't you don't just create some committee with a bunch of MSPs and a few, you know, senior yeah. civil servants. Yeah, so it's, a, so it's another kind of pipeline situation, really, isn't it? I said uh, taxation for infrastructure projects. I meant to say borrowing. Yeah. Uh, that the Scottish government can borrow for those projects. But but it's a, it's another announcement, really, then, Mike, uh, it's kind of emperor's new clothes, isn't it? Is that there's no substance to this at all at the moment? And you're right. If we go, if we rely on on uh, uh, the lessons from past projects, then we won't get we won't get past go here. You know. No. Uh, no. And you know, so I'm just intrigued that a government that that basically can't build a dual carriageway from Perth to Inverness, that can't build a boat is now basically going to international markets to say, invest in us, uh, uh, you know, and, and you'll get a return on that investment. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued as to how that will that'll work out, you know. Well, I, I think that, it, I'm just going to say, John, I think the short answer is we kind of know how it probably will work I out. I mean, I you only have to think about, I mean, again, running projects, right? Just quickly, I know we're out of time here, but the deposit return scheme, which we've talked about, which, you know, Lorna Slater has absolutely... No accountability for in her in her mind. You know, it was all Westminster's fault, which is you know the the, the standard mantra of of many people uh, uh, that we've heard in governments in Scotland. Um, but we've seen how why was that such a disaster? It's because you create the whole project, you introduce regulations through the Scottish Parliament, you build the whole thing, you spend a fortune, you get businesses to spend a fortune, and yet you just assume that you're going to get permission from the Internal Market Act in terms of UK government. Now, what should have happened is, and again, I mean, I mean, we're not getting paid to do this, John, but I offer this free advice, is that, is that, and I'm not joking, what should have happened is you get the, perm, you get the permission first. I mean, think about it, John, right? Let's say you're going to build an extension to your house, right? Oh, I know. Do you just build that extension, John, and then go to the council Oh, can I get my consent uh, from the planning committee? Thanks. It's like, no, you don't do that. You get, you always get things, you get your ducks in a row, you get your permissions, and then you invest when you've got the security of knowing it's a project that's green lighted. That never mm -hmm. happened. And why did that never happen? Because of absolute, I think, combination yeah. of arrogance, a combination of being immature being uh incompetent did I, did, I, did, did I mention bad governance earlier on mate i think you did john i think you did and and perhaps on that note because i don't want to for us to i know we're over our time but i think uh <laughs> on that on that note um okay. we can we can wrap up there and uh i look forward to chatting to you next week okay good man thanks a lot mate See all the soon. best all the best cheers bye-bye